Welcome to Wednesday in the Word. I'm Chrisanne Murata. Ahead on today's podcast, Libby Taggart will be speaking on Psalm 98. For more talks on the Psalms and more talks by Libby, please visit our website, which is WednesdayInTheWord.com. Thank you for joining us. I love this psalm, and I hope that you all have enjoyed studying it as well. It's, um, it's beautiful. The American poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow said that music is the universal language of mankind. Now, how many of you, after this talk about noise, how many of you like music or like to sing? And how many of you have listened to music or sung this morning? Even if we can't sing well, we sing. We sing to our unborn babies. We sing to and with our children. We may sing while we're working. We sing as part of worship. We sing to our sweethearts. And we sing to our dying loved ones. Songs can create a variety of feelings and moods and even cause us to remember certain and specific times and events. Whenever I hear Good Night, My Love, that song, it takes me back to my college days when Jack and I were dating and we listened to a particular radio station and at 11.55 p.m., they always played this song. So we would listen to it, and then we would run, and y'all are going to love this, to get me back into the dorm by midnight. We did have deadlines. <laughs> it wasn't an all-night affair then. Also, when I'm in working in the kitchen, I have a CD that I like to listen to that we got in Israel because it reminds me of our time there. And it reminds me of the night we were on the Sea of Galilee worshiping with this musician leading us in worship. And it also reminds me of my Savior. Now, one of my sons-in-law laughs at my sister and me because no matter what someone says or does while we're together, Debbie and I come up with a phrase or a line from a song that applies to whatever's going on, and we sing it. And he is always amazed. He will say, I can't believe you came up with something for that. An English writer has described music as an outburst of the soul. We're going to study a few of the Psalms this year, and as we do, we want to remember that they're not only a 3,000-year-old prayer book, but they're also a hymn book that the Israelites used as part of their worship. Psalm 98 is a hymn of praise and was most likely used throughout the Old Testament period to celebrate the victories that God won for Israel when the army returned from battle and Israel attributed the victory to God, their divine warrior. It's a bold and lively song and it seems to get louder and louder as the circle of praise it keeps expanding And it does seem to be an outburst of the psalmist's soul. Psalm 98 is also part of a series of royal or enthronement psalms, which would be 93 through 99. And many people see parallels between Psalm 96 and 98. But Psalm 98 
It's all about praise. There's joy. There's exhilaration. One commentator refers to it as a coronation hymn with the most devout and soul-stirring of sacred lyrics. It's a prophetic psalm, and we shall look at it from an Old Testament perspective as well as a New Testament perspective. So let's read Psalm 98 together. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. The psalm or hymn is divided into three stanzas. Stanza 1, verses 1 through 3, is a call to Israel to praise the Lord as Savior. Stanza 2, verses 4 through 6, is a call to to the whole earth to praise the Lord as King. And stanza 3, verses 7 through 9, is a call to the entire universe to praise the Lord as Judge. Now let's look at stanza 1. A call to Israel to praise the Lord as Savior. Verses 1 through 3. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. It's good to remember that whenever we see LORD in all caps, we know it is the Hebrew word for Yahweh, meaning the eternal God, the one who reigns. And it comes from the Hebrew verb to be or I am. And this is how God referred to himself. And this is how Jesus answered when asked if he was the Messiah, which caused the high priest to tear his robe. Jesus wasn't just saying yes. He was saying that he was I am. He was Yahweh. And to the Jews, this was blasphemy. For a mere man, as they saw Jesus, to claim to be God, and they were even more determined than ever, to crucify him. The psalm says to sing to the Lord a new song, which is the call to worship or praise in this hymn. 
If you recall from your study questions, two characteristic parts of a psalm are a call to worship and the reasons for the praise. This call to worship is an imperative addressed to everyone, not a particular individual. The reasons for this praise are the wonderful acts that God has done, the victory he has won. So it is to be a new song, an extraordinary song, not just common praise, remembering God's grace and all that he has done, not just a single event. Generally, the Psalms do not point to specific historical events. The reader would have remembered that God, the divine warrior, had delivered Israel many times in the past. In the Exodus, the wars won under Joshua, the victories over the Philistines under King David, and when God brought the remnant back from exile. The word marvelous is a standard term for the miraculous interventions of God to save his people, such as in the plagues in Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea during the Exodus. The word is the same one used in Genesis 18.14, when God said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard or wonderful for the Lord? Or in Isaiah 9.6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. How are these marvelous things or wonderful acts accomplished? They are accomplished by God's right hand and his holy arm through his own sufficient power and not by human means or in an ordinary way, which symbolizes God's direct personal intervention on behalf of his people. It is God taking charge of man's history. And what has been accomplished by this holy flexing of God's muscle on his people's behalf? A salvation victory, a deliverance, which is the reason for the praise in this stanza. This metaphor of God's hand and arm are used in conjunction with the words salvation and holy. Isaiah 52.10 The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Isaiah 59:16. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intercede. So his own arm worked salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. God shows himself to be the divine warrior as he saves his people from their enemies by the power of his right hand and his holy arm. Salvation in verse 2, although mentioned first, is the effect of his righteousness. John Calvin said that the righteousness of God, which is the source of salvation, does not consist in his recompensing men according to their works, 
but is just the illustration of His mercy, grace, and faithfulness. The salvation victory was no secret affair. The nations see God's salvation and righteousness. The Hebrew word for righteousness in verse 2 has the meaning justice, virtue, and putting right what is wrong. The word salvation in verse 1 is the Hebrew word for deliver, preserve, rescue, get victory, or bring salvation. And the Hebrew word for salvation in verses 2 and 3 is a different word, meaning something saved, welfare, or deliverance. Therefore, aid, victory, and help. So what does this mean? The divine warrior's right hand and holy arm have rescued Israel and brought victory for the Lord. The deliverance and victory, as well as God's justice and virtue, have been revealed to the nations. Also, because of this, the whole earth sees God's love and faithfulness to the house of Israel, and it sees God's salvation or deliverance. Therefore, an extraordinary song of praise should be sung to God. Now, before we move on to the second stanza, let's talk about verse 3a. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. Why has God delivered Israel? Israel was no better than any nation, nor more numerous than other peoples or nations. But God chose them as his holy people. He set them apart, loved them, and blessed the nations through them, because he had made a covenant with Abraham and had promised that his descendants would become a great nation and occupy the land of Canaan, Genesis 15. The promise was also made to Isaac and Joseph, or excuse me, Jacob. God said to Abraham in Genesis 12:3, "I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you." The Hebrew word for love in verse 3 is hesed. H e s e d, which means covenant loving kindness. Hesed refers to the love which results from God's intimate covenant relationship with his people. Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. Therefore, in the Psalms, the psalmists speak out of the context of covenant. And as I mentioned, it is an intimate relationship with God. The relationship is initiated, established, preserved, and the conditions are set by God himself. Now, there's much that can be said about covenant, but that's the topic for another study. But as you read the Psalms, notice how the psalmists cry out to God from the context of this intimate covenant relationship with him and the way they call on others who know God's love to do the same. Let's look at stanza two now. 
a call to the whole earth to praise the Lord as king. Verses 4 through 6. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. The music and the praise get louder. Now, not just Israel, but the whole earth to whom God's salvation and righteousness have been revealed, verse 2, are called upon to shout for joy to the Lord with all kinds of music, from singing to lyre to trumpets to ram's horns. All are to join together in praising not Israel's human king, but God, the victorious and true king. C.S. Lewis said that in Hebrew worship, there was a certain gusto. And we can maybe see or even hear that in these verses. Make a joyful noise or shout with joy in verses 4 and 6 is a spontaneous shout that might greet a king or a moment of victory. Now, we don't know much about kings in our country, but we do know about moments of victory, particularly when it comes to sporting events. The psalm is referring to the same shouting and rejoicing as in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This prophecy, as you know, was fulfilled when Jesus rode into Jerusalem prior to Passover, and the people on that day were shouting loud hosannas full of happiness as they welcomed King Jesus. And this, of course, is the event that we remember on Palm Sunday. Burst, or break forth from verse 4, is a favorite expression in Isaiah for an outburst of delight too great to be contained. Isaiah 52.9, burst into songs of joy together. The Lord is to be worshipped not just with shouts of joy, but with singing and musical instruments. These, These expressions of rejoicing were common in Jewish worship, but they were also part of a coronation ceremony of a new king. 1 Kings 1, 39 and 40. Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the sacred tent and anointed Solomon. Then they sounded the trumpet, and all the people shouted, Long live King Solomon! And all the people went up after him, playing flutes and rejoicing greatly, so that the ground shook with the sound. The musical instruments in verses 5 and 6 and the singing were used in worship of God in the temple. The harp or the lyre was a sweet instrument, soft and gentle, and capable of great expression. The trumpet and the ram's horn symbolized power, the power that should be put forth in worship and in celebration to the victorious king. And then there was the singing. 
Charles Spurgeon said that man's voice is at its best when it sings the best words in the best spirit to the best of beings. Make a joyful noise to the Lord in verse 4 and make a joyful noise before the King the Lord in verse 6 form what is called an inclusion. Verse 6 explains the particular reason for the celebration, which is that the Lord, Yahweh, the divine warrior, has won the victory and is king, which is the reason for the praise in this stanza. These three verses are good instruction about worshiping and praising the Lord any time. And they've moved me to consider my own worship of the Lord at church or elsewhere. Am I spiritually prepared by reading the scripture ahead of time and praying that my worship would be pleasing to the Lord? Have I considered the marvelous things that God has done for me by his right hand and his holy arm that week? Am I rested? Are clothes ready and things ready for breakfast on Sunday morning? Or at CCC, getting to church on time to have bagels. Um, And then I ask myself, do I prepare for worship as much as I would for Sunday dinner if company was coming? And you may have other things that you do, or perhaps this will cause you to consider ways that you could prepare for worship better. When all of our children were still at home, whether young children or teenagers, sometimes getting ready for church on Sunday morning was so stressful that we used to laugh and say that church is exactly where we needed to be, even though our worship might not have been what it should have been. But after worship, things were always better. I heard of um, someone say that after a stressful Sunday morning of getting ready for church, that they would sing on the way to church, and that changed everything. It turned the focus from the circumstances to the Lord as they sang to him. When we worship, we are praising our King, King Jesus. In countries that have a king, there's public rejoicing at the coronation of the king, or sometimes if the king is in a parade, there's much rejoicing as well. Our worship, whether public or private, should come from the joy of a heart that remembers God's grace and mercy to us. So let us prepare ourselves each time we worship and raise our hearts and souls to our king who gave his life for us. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do our tongues in worship reflect a joy that comes from a grateful heart? Or are they mute and dull because of our present circumstances? It has been said that those in love with Jesus worship best. Now let's look at stanza three, a call to the entire universe to praise the Lord as judge, verses seven through nine. Let the sea soar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. 
Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. The praise gets even louder as the chorus of nature, the entire universe, and the whole of creation praises Yahweh, the divine warrior, the coming judge. Up to this point, Israel and the whole earth have been called on to worship through instrument and song. In these verses, nature is invited, invited to join the praise. The sea and its inhabitants, the world and its inhabitants, the flood and the hills, all are to be joyful before the Lord. In the roaring of the sea, there is worship. From animate and inanimate nature, there is praise. In the winds and rain, there is praise. From the floods and hills, there is praise. Inarticulate, but nonetheless praise of and for their Creator. Do we ever stop in our hectic lives to just drink in the beauty of the four seasons all around us in this beautiful place where we live? Do we see the reflection of our Creator and His creation and let our souls soar with praise? When we do this, if we do, it can be a Sabbath moment. The clapping of hands by the rivers is personification, which is a poetic figure of speech in which an inanimate object is given the powers and abilities of a person. Now, we don't interpret these verses literally. However, we can see and hear sights of a raging river or a waterfall or the ocean after a hurricane, all of which are part of God's creation, giving him praise. In the third stanza, once again, the object of praise is God. He has been praised as Savior in stanza one, as King in stanza two, and here in stanza three is coming judge. And all of these are connected to God as the divine warrior committed to protecting and saving his people. Exodus 15.3 The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. In your study, you read Exodus 15.1 through 21, a song of praise to God by Moses when God saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians on the shores of the Red Sea. Psalm 98 is all about praise of God in the past, present, and in this stanza, the future. Genesis 2, 13-17 The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. God gave Adam work to do in the garden and a commandment which he disobeyed. Therefore we and the whole of creation are subject to a kind of bondage, sin. And we will be delivered from the curse only when God comes to set up his kingdom. Now turn to Romans chapter 8.
if you want to follow along, and I'm going to read verses 18 through 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who suggested, subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. God is already king, verse 6. But the earth doesn't yet acknowledge his rule. Therefore, he's coming to judge the earth and its peoples. God showed his righteousness in saving his people, verse 2. And he will show it again in his judging of the world. By implication, this judging is either vindication or punishment. And we see the divine warrior once again fighting for his people as he judges the wicked. The righteousness in verse 9 comes from to be right in a moral sense, and it is altogether just. The equity spoken of here is uprightness. As I think of this, And my own human weaknesses. You should be glad that I am not the judge. And on the other hand, I'm glad that you are not the judge. In your study, I ask you to consider whether or not you need a divine warrior as Israel did. And to look at Ephesians 6.12 to help you answer that question. So turn to Ephesians 6 if you'd like to follow along. And I'll read verses 10 through 18. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And here's verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert 
with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. As we think of this present darkness and the forces of evil, seen and unseen, we must remember two things. Number one, God has given us all we need to defeat the enemy. And number two, what Jesus said in John 16:33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So let us call on our Savior, King, Judge, and Divine Warrior for salvation, peace, protection, vindication, and deliverance. Now let's consider how we can meditate on Psalm 98 from a New Testament perspective. How does it fit into our relationship with Jesus Christ and giving Him praise and worship? And how does it give us hope for the present and the future? From stanza one, we praise Jesus the Savior who has saved us in the past. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In Psalm 98, verses 2 and 3, we see the gospel. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. The gospel is not a theory about God or a set of rules by which to live but is a a new song, a radically different voice on the human scene, as one commentator puts it. It is God's holy arm taking charge of history. 1 Corinthians 1.24 Christ crucified is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Another commentator points out that the appearing of God in history was most particular. It was very specified with respect to time and place. God has become incarnate only once. Only once has the price of our sins been paid. Only once has he appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has ordained. Moreover, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Only once has God, through Jesus, done all these wondrous things, and He has done it for us. He is truly worthy of our praise. <coughs> from stanza two, we praise Jesus, who is our King in the present. Psalm twenty-two twenty-eight: For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. Psalm 103, 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Ephesians 1, 
21 through 23. God seated him, Jesus, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. King Jesus rules the world, the universe, and everyone and everything in it. They may not acknowledge him, but nothing and no one is exempt from his rule. He is in charge and has the final word on everything. He is also head of and rules the church, which is his body. And it is through his body, you and me, by the power of the Spirit, that he acts, speaks to the nations, and fills everything with his presence. He is our king who can be trusted and is working all things together for our good because he has called us and saved us according to his purpose. Therefore, we make a joyful noise, we bring praise, and we bow down in worship before our reigning King, Jesus. From stanza three, we praise Jesus who is coming as the righteous judge in the future. When we think of the final judgment and Jesus Christ is the final judge, we see two pictures. One from Matthew 25, 31 and 32. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him. The other is of, is of, is of Jesus as the divine warrior who does away with evil once and for all. From Revelation chapter 19. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Our hope as Christians is summed up in verse 9 of Psalm 98. For he comes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful psalm. How our souls soar when we read it and we think of you and who you are and all that you have done for us and continue to do for us. We praise you, Father. And we say, All hail to you, King Jesus. All hail, Emmanuel. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. 
our bright morning star. And through all eternity, we want to praise you, Jesus. And forevermore, we shall reign with you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.